2,700 years ago, the prophet Isaiah wrote to God's people, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. You know, there's only, there's only one thing that can ever separate you from God. And that is your own sin. Other people cannot separate you from God. This world cannot separate you from God. Other religions cannot separate you from God. In fact, the devil himself cannot separate you from God. For all the power in heaven above and on this earth and even in hell below, there's only one person who has been granted the ability by God to keep you separated from him. And that is you. Fact of the matter is, you are as close to God in your life right now as you want to be. Right? It isn't God who keeps us from being close to him. Jesus' brother James said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James 4.8 The Apostle Paul said, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 38 and 39. He told Timothy that it was God's desire for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 4. Jesus said that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, John 3, 16. So you understand, even in our sin, God still loves us and still wants us to be in relationship with him. So clearly it isn't God preventing that from happening. It isn't the enemy of our souls either, by the way. It isn't the devil who separates us from God either. Jesus said, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Luke 10, 19. You see, the only person who bears the responsibility of keeping you away from God is you. Immediately after James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, his very next statement is, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, the only thing that's keeping you from drawing near to God is your own sin. You see, sin is always a choice. In fact, in one of the most misinterpreted passages in all of biblical scripture, the Apostle Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 And of course, you hear people all the time interpret this passage to mean that God promises to never give us more than we can handle in this life. That's not at all what Paul is saying here. The fact is, if you've lived for any amount of time on this earth, you know that's not true. The fact is, we are most certainly given far more than we can handle at times in our lives, which is one of the reasons we need Jesus, because there's nothing in this life that he cannot handle. 
So we look to him, not to ourselves at those times in our lives when we're absolutely facing more than we can handle. I just had a conversation last week with a man who lost his eight-year-old daughter. You're telling me that isn't more than a human being can handle? It certainly is. What Paul's saying here is that because God is faithful, we will never be put in a situation in this life where our only option in response to that situation is to sin. Because he always provides, as Paul says, a way of escape without us having to sin. Because sin is always a choice. We're never forced to sin. In fact, he says we have power over sin. Again, Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Sin is always a choice that we make, and it separates us from God. So why then, of course, uh, the question is, why then do we willingly choose to sin? Right? If sin is bad for us, if sin weighs us down, if sin separates us from God, then why do we willingly choose to sin? Well, the truth is, most believers probably don't wake up in the morning and decide that day to disobey God. Right? Typically, there's a progression that occurs over a period of time, from temptation to consideration to transgression. And yet, all along that progression, at any point along the way, we have the authority to frustrate evil in our own lives. We have the authority to deny our own sinful nature. We have the authority to resist the enemy. And when you do that, according to James, the enemy will flee from you, James 4, 7. Great, so, so why don't we do that? Why don't we always resist the enemy? Why don't we always deny ourselves and our own sinful nature? And just to be clear, you understand as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven. You know that, right? Jesus took care of every single one of your sins on the cross. Every sin you've ever committed, every sin you're ever going to commit was atoned for once for all through his shed blood on the cross. He doesn't have to go back and be crucified over and over and over again every time you sin, right? Which means we are righteous in Christ, but not yet perfected until the day of redemption, which means, of course, we still sin. We transgress his word. We still fail and falter. And every time we do, make no mistake, there is an effect on how we are able to relate to God in that moment. The apostle Peter wrote this to Christians. He said, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 1 Peter 3, 7. In other words, Christian, your sin can actually hinder your prayers. After describing a long list of sins, the apostle Paul wrote to Christians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, Ephesians 4.30. In other words, Christian, your sin can actually grieve the Holy Spirit of God within you. In fact, about himself. The great Apostle Paul writes to Christians, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the, the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Does that sound familiar? Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Romans seven fifteen through 20. Obviously, as Christians, we still struggle with sin, and there is a very real effect that that sin has on how we're able to relate to God, which is why Peter said, again, to Christians, he said, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, 1 Peter 1.15. Why? Because we cannot draw near to God through sin. No, sin separates us from God. By the way, that's not legalism. That is love. Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, John 14, 15, because obeying the commands of God is one of the ways that we show our love for him. Right, so why then do we keep on sinning? Well, ultimately, it's because we allow ourselves to believe a lie, which we'll talk about in the second half of this two-part message. Again, a week from today, we have the Academy of Arts coming. It's going to be an amazing time. I want you to be here. But so the second part to this message will be in two weeks, right? But so we're going to talk about believing a lie. But it doesn't start there. It starts with something much simpler and yet far more veiled than that, as we're going to see in this story today as we continue working our way through the history of creation. So let's pick the story up where we left off last week and see if we can first of all learn to better identify the progression of sin in our own lives and then also how to effectively stop it when we find ourselves going down that road. So we're going to begin at Genesis chapter 3. We'll read the first seven verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the, any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So after being wonderfully made in the image of God and given authority and dominion over the rest of creation, Adam and Eve act on the advice of a serpent rather than on the command of God himself, who has given them everything that they have. And in the process, they bring a curse down upon the earth, and all of its inhabitants. Thank you so much. <laughs> At a cursory glance, what Adam and Eve did seems preposterous, doesn't it? I mean, you're living in the most desirable place on earth with the very best of everything in perfect harmony with God and with each other, the world around you as well. You have authority over the earth, access to the creator, and not one single imperfection to have to mitigate in your own life. 
And then along comes this slimy, slithering, creepy, fork-tongued snake who convinces you to do the one thing that God told you not to do. Right? At least that's, that's how it is often portrayed in art and film and other literature today. When in fact, if you look a little deeper, you'll find that not to be the case at all. In fact, what Adam and Eve were doing with the serpent in the garden is something that every single one of us is guilty of doing many, many times in our own lives. They were simply entertaining temptation from, by the way, what seemed to be a very natural and innocuous, harmless source, which is always the first step in our own progression towards sin. Okay, first of all, when verse 1 says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, the word crafty is the ancient Hebrew word arum, which it doesn't uh, sort of carry the same connotation as the words crafty and cunning uh, do in our English language today. The original meaning here is much closer to prudent or sensible, even shrewd, right? So uh, although the serpent is not directly identified here as Satan, by the way, he is in Job 26, 13, Isaiah 51, 9, Revelation 12, 9, and Revelation 22. And interestingly, in the study of comparative religion, we find in other ancient Near Eastern literature that the serpent was understood to be a shining divine being. He was a member of God's heavenly host or council in serpentine appearance. A Hebrew scholar, Nahum Sarna, says that throughout the ancient world, the serpent was endowed with divine or semi-divine qualities. It was venerated as an emblem of health, fertility, immortality, occult wisdom, and chaotic evil. It was often worshipped. The serpent played a significant role in the mythology, the religious symbolism, and the cults of the ancient Near East. Okay? In ancient uh, Egypt, the serpent was believed to be a wise and even magical creature. In fact, Wajet, the patron goddess of lower Egypt, was a present, a represented on Pharaoh's crown as a snake. It was a symbol of the king's power. And there are many other uh, Hebrew scholars who maintain that the word serpent uh, in verse 1, nakash, in the ancient Hebrew originally meant shining, upright creature, which makes sense in light of how Satan is described in the garden in Ezekiel 28, 12 through 17. Listen, this is a, a, dis a description of Satan. It says, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So of all the creatures... Right, of everything that God created, the serpent was the most sensible, prudent, full of wisdom, and perfectly beautiful of them all. Not at all the picture that is portrayed in paintings of the creepy snake slithering down the tree and whispering in Eve's ear. No, this was a beautiful, 
highly intelligent, level-headed, articulate, and probably upright creature who was approaching Adam and Eve for what appeared to be some friendly conversation. You understand, to Adam and Eve, this would have seemed completely natural in a place like Eden. Having a conversation with a creature that looks and sounds wonderful, it would have been anything but threatening or creepy or menacing. It was a perfect day. It was a perfect day in a perfect place as this perfectly beautiful and intelligent creature comes over to Adam and Eve, two perfect human beings, to talk about the perfect trees in their perfect garden. But listen, temptation always looks and sounds good. Otherwise, it wouldn't be tempting, would it? To Adam and Eve, this was just another perfect day in paradise, having a harmless conversation with a wonderful creature who even begins to quote God himself, sort of. He said to the woman, did God actually say? And before we get to the actual quote itself, it's significant to note that when the serpent says the name God, he deliberately avoids using the personal name of God, which is Yahweh or Lord, which God is appropriately, of course, referred to throughout the rest of this chapter, after this conversation between Eve and the serpent. So he deliberately dishonors God's name because temptation always dishonors the name of God. Okay, when it, when it comes to recognizing the progression of sin in our own lives, this is one of the litmus tests that you should always use. If you're ever not sure about something or someone that may be a temptation for you to sin, ask this question. Does whatever I'm about to listen to or engage in or be a part of does it bring honor or dishonor to the name of God? And of course, that may sound subjective to you, but honestly, it's not all that hard to answer that question when you're facing temptation. Simply ask yourself, is whatever I'm about to engage in, that conversation or that action or that relationship, that participation in whatever it is, ask yourself, would I want to make sure that everyone present knows that I'm a Christian right before I do whatever it is I'm about to do? Or would I rather the people who are there not know that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ before I do whatever it is I'm about to do? Because look, if, if whatever it is you're considering being a part of, if it brings glory to his name, you'll not only have no problem with people knowing you're a Christian, but you'll actually want people to understand that he's the reason you're doing it so that he gets the glory and not you. Right? Well, on the other hand, if it dishonors his name, you won't want anyone who is there to know that you're a Christian because no one, of course, wants to be a hypocrite. And listen, I'll just tell you, I'm, I'm so convicted. When I look back at my own life and think about all of the things that I've done and said that have brought dishonor to God's name because I entertain temptation in my own life. I hear people all the time talk about having no regrets. I understand what they mean by that, but listen, I have more regrets than I could write in a book. I deeply regret everything I've ever done or said in my life that has brought dishonor to the name of Jesus Christ, which is exactly what happens when you entertain temptation in your life. So the key, of course, is to recognize it for what it is. Even when it looks good and even when it sounds good, if it's going to dishonor the name of Christ, then don't entertain it. Don't engage it. Don't continue to consider it. You walk away even when everything in you wants to stay. It's what Jesus meant when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself what you want and take up his cross daily. 
and follow me. It's a process day after day after day because we're still prone to sin. We're still prone to do what we want. No one ever said this life of following Christ was going to be easy. In fact, Jesus said just the opposite. Of course, temptation always looks good and sounds good. It always dishonors the name of Christ as well. Denying what you want in deference for what he wants, that is the way of Christ. Adam and Eve should have picked up on the serpent's slight against the name of God, but they continued to entertain his temptation. He said to the woman, did God actually say you? And the you here in the Hebrew is plural, by the way. So he's referring to both Adam and Eve together. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, of course, what God actually said in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 was, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So Satan deliberately misquotes God, twisting his words in order to try and get Adam and Eve to begin questioning God's own word, which was spoken directly to them, which makes perfect sense because temptation always contradicts the word of God. It's the oldest trick up his sleeve to contradict the word of God by misusing the word of God in a way that looks good and sounds good. It's exactly what he tried to do with Jesus during his 40 days in the wilderness. It's exactly what he tried to do through false teachers in the New Testament church. And it is exactly what he's still doing today all throughout Christendom. Because look, it's a lot easier for us to reject a complete fallacy than it is to reject a half-truth. Right? Half-truths are always easier to spread and they're always easier to accept because they look good and they sound good. The fact is, temptation always looks good and it always sounds good and it almost always begins in the form of a half-truth. Just enough truth to make it seem reasonable, to make it look good and to make it sound good. But if you look close enough, you'll find that temptation ultimately contradicts God's word every single time. So the serpent now dishonors God's name and he misquotes God's word in the same conversation which should have been two giant red flags for Adam and Eve. Yet they allowed the conversation to continue and in the process they continued to entertain the temptation of the enemy. There is a difference though at this point because we know now that they knew better. Adam and Eve knew well and good that what the serpent was doing and saying was wrong and we know that because Eve tries to correct him and the woman said, Eve willingly enters into conversation with the enemy when she should have resisted him and simply walked away. James, the brother of Jesus, said again, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and what? He will flee from you, James 4, 7. Okay, right then and there, Eve should have slammed the door in the devil's face, but instead she continued to entertain his temptation by entering into conversation with him as she tries to correct his error in quoting God's word or misquoting it. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. That one over there. Neither shall you touch it, he said, lest you die. Some say that Eve did the right thing here. That she was simply defending the word of the Lord. But if that was her motivation, then it should have come with a warning. The Apostle Paul said, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned, Titus 3, 10 and 11. In Romans 16, 17 and 18, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 
In Colossians 2.8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The Apostle John said, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Don't even say hello, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. You just slam the door in his face. 2 John 1, 10 and 11. Listen, as Christians, do you understand? You are under no obligation whatsoever to entertain false teaching. Do you know that? You are under no obligation whatsoever to entertain false teaching, and yet in much of the modern church, we consume it like it's manna from heaven. Why do we do that? Well, because it looks good and it sounds good. And of course, there are times when the Holy Spirit may lead us to confront an evil spirit operating in a false teacher or a heretic or the demon possessed, but look, by far and away, the preponderance of Scripture instructs us to stay away from those who would mislead us, teach us false doctrine, twist God's words, and by doing so, create division in the church. We just read, we're to have nothing to do with them. He says, not even to greet them. So look, anyone who is earnestly seeking the truth, no matter their station in life, that person is always welcome in this church. Right? If someone who follows another doctrine or another religion wants to come here because they're genuinely seeking the truth, then of course they're welcome here with open arms. The truth is we want all who would seek the truth to come here and find it in Christ. But listen, to those who come here specifically with an agenda to twist God's word and mislead this family of believers into following a false gospel or a false religion, which has happened several times in this church. I'm just telling you, they are not welcome here. Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Those aren't my words. Those are God's words. Much of the church has rejected this teaching, at least in the West, where we seem to devour just about every new philosophy about Jesus and the Bible that comes our way as long as it looks good and sounds good, as if the church is supposed to be some kind of melting pot of new and alternative ideas about Jesus as long as those ideas validate our feelings about ourselves. No, no, we're the bride of Christ given to him in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish, Ephesians 5.27. Okay, it's not that we can't have new ideas or even new ways of teaching the unchanging gospel. And for what it's worth, certainly there is a lot of new teaching and new material that comes out year after year that is good, that honors the name of God and the word of God. The point is we need to be able to discern the difference between the two. Author and scholar Cornelius Plantinga says Satan must appeal to our God-given appetite for goodness in order to win his way. To prevail, evil must leech not only power and intelligence from goodness, but also its credibility. From counterfeit money to phony airliner parts to the trustworthy look on the face of a con artist, evil appears in disguise. Hence its treacherousness, hence the need for the Holy Spirit's gift of discernment, Hence the sheer difficulty at times of distinguishing what is good from what is evil. It's so important that we learn 
how to identify philosophies and teachings that contradict the word of God because anyone can take a passage of scripture or a selection of carefully chosen scriptures and create an entire narrative about Jesus or the Christian faith that is contrary to what Jesus himself taught. And of course, uh, there are people who do that all the time. And the better it looks and the better it sounds, the more Christians follow them. It's one of the reasons we preach and teach through entire books of the Bible here. It's not because that's the only right way to preach. No, it's not because you can't be effective some other way. Many people are. But listen, it's because I'm a human being. And left to my own devices, it would be very easy for me to entertain the temptation to selectively choose to preach through the passages of the Bible that I really like and avoid the ones I really don't. What you end up with when you do that at best is an incomplete gospel message, and at worst, a false doctrine. Yet that's exactly what's happening increasingly in modern Christian culture, because when you fail to teach the whole counsel of God, as Paul refers to it in Acts 20, 27, well, you're teaching an incomplete picture of who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do for this world. So how do we know the difference, right? How, how do we know whether someone is teaching the truth or some alternative version of the truth. Well, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Now listen, most fruit doesn't grow overnight. It grows over a season. And so if you encounter a new teaching, a new perspective on the gospel, a new philosophy about Jesus, some alternative way of interpreting the scriptures, whatever it is, I'm telling you, you should take your time before deciding to entertain that teaching or that perspective, no matter how good it looks or how good it sounds, right? Before you consider that new philosophy or that alternate interpretation of the scriptures, take some time and watch the fruit that actually comes out of it before you decide to follow it, no matter how good it looks or how good it sounds. Take your time and watch the fruit that it actually produces. Does it address the whole counsel of God or just one aspect of the scriptures? Does it build up the church or does it mock the church? Does it acknowledge our need for holiness or simply our desire for happiness? Does it honor the completed canon of scripture or does it seek to add or take away from the scriptures through new revelations given to the author or the producer of that new material? Right? Does it affirm God's word as objective truth? In other words, when referencing a passage of scripture, it asks the question, what does this passage of scripture mean? Or does it leave room in the scriptures for subjective reasoning up to each person and interpretation? In other words, it asks the question, what does this passage of scripture mean to me? Right? You understand, when you're reading scripture, when you're studying the Bible, when you're reading, you should never take a passage of scripture and, and ask yourself, what does this passage of scripture mean to me? Now, that is the wrong way to approach the Bible. What you should always ask is, what does this passage of scripture mean? Period. Full stop. Because the scriptures mean whatever God wrote them to mean, not whatever we would like for them to mean. Okay? When you take time, 
to watch the fruit that a new teaching or perspective or philosophy or interpretation produces, at some point you will absolutely be able to tell whether it confirms or contradicts God's word. You will. Sometimes it takes time over a season. Of course, sometimes it doesn't take long at all. Eve knew immediately that what the serpent was saying was wrong, and yet she continued to entertain his temptation. Unless you think I'm picking on Eve here to the exclusion of Adam, he was there with her. He should have stood up for his wife. He should have defended her. He should have punched the serpent in the face. That's the Rucci-inspired version. He should have led her out of harm's way. But he didn't do anything. Instead, they both allow the serpent to continue tempting them. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, who is God to tell you that only he should have the knowledge of good and evil? Make no mistake about it, this was a direct challenge to the authority of God. And of course, there are elements of this statement by the serpent that are true. Right? When Adam and Eve eat the fruit, they don't die. At least not immediately. Their eyes were opened in ways that previously they hadn't been. For the first time, they understood they were naked. And of course, they knew good and evil, for they hid from God after eating the fruit, knowing that what they'd done was wrong. There was definitely some truth in the serpent's statement, but it was only half truth. Not only did he not tell them everything else that would happen to them when they ate the fruit, like being expelled from the garden and having to toil for their food and no longer having the same access to the Creator and suffering and death, albeit many years away. The serpent was dealing in half-truths as he always did and always does, and yet it was more than that. He was not only dishonoring the name of God and contradicting the word of God, but by essentially calling God a liar in verse 4 and an insecure, selfish ruler in verse 5, the serpent was directly challenging the authority of God, which should come as no surprise because temptation always challenges the authority of God. And it plays into our human nature. It plays, it plays into our human nature because we all want Jesus. We just want him on our own terms. We have no problem with Jesus' love in our lives, his strength in our lives, his peace in our lives, his joy in our lives, his healing in our lives, even his freedom in our lives. It's his authority in our lives that rubs us the wrong way. Because his authority in our lives gets in the way of us doing all the things that look good and sound good to us. This is one of the reasons that alternative gospel messages often become so popular so quickly because if they can invalidate the less popular truth claims in God's word, then they can invalidate the less popular aspects of God's authority in our lives. Which means we can focus more on what we want and less on what God wants without any sense of conviction. But listen, all you have to do to see that challenging God's authority in your life ultimately doesn't work. All you have to do, if you need proof of that, just look around in our society today. Chuck Colson and Nancy Piercy write, all the ideologies, all the utopian promises that have marked this century have proven utterly bankrupt. Americans have achieved what modernism presented as life's great shining purpose, individual autonomy the right to do what one chooses, 
Yet this has not produced the promised freedom. Instead, it has led to the loss of community and civility, to kids shooting kids in schoolyards, to citizens huddling in gated communities for protection. We have discovered that we cannot live with the chaos that inevitably results from choice divorced from morality. The fact is you will never fully experience the love and strength and peace and joy and freedom that Christ has put in you until you fully submit to the authority that he rightfully has over you. Right? How effective, how, how effective would a military be? For all of you military folks, you tell me, how effective would a military be if there was no authority? If every soldier was permitted to do whatever he or she thought was best, how many battles do you think that military would win? How effective are families where there's no authority? Listen, our prisons are absolutely full of people who will tell you they grew up without any authority in their lives. I know because I spent years working with prisoners on a regular basis. How effective are local churches who refuse to submit to the authority of God's word? I'll tell you, they end up conforming to the culture instead of transforming it. The truth is, nothing in this world works like it should or like it could without authority also working in it, and neither will your life. Listen, when you entertain temptation, you're directly challenging his authority in your life, the authority that you need for your life to be all that it should be and could be if you were submitted to it. Listen, without a doubt, submitting your life to his authority is one of the hardest things that most of us will ever do. I'm, I'm personally convinced that when the biblical authors uh, talk about how we identify with Christ through suffering, that they're not talking primarily about persecution, but about self-denial, taking up our cross daily, denying ourselves and following Jesus, because that is far more difficult to do than to confront persecution. They gladly went to their deaths Heads lopped off, bodies boiled in oil, thrown from the Temple Mount, and never complained once. But oh, did they complain about having to die to themselves. Read Paul's writings. He said, I've suffered the loss of all things. That's how we identify with Christ in our lives, through suffering. It's through death to self. When Jesus was in the garden, he said, Father, take this cup from me. Nonetheless, not my will but yours be done. That's the suffering that we identify with in Christ when we die to ourselves. Submitting your life to his authority, is, that's one of the hardest things you'll ever have to do. It means swallowing your pride. It means denying yourself. It means giving up your own dreams when they don't line up with his plans. It means submitting your life to God's authority. It means accepting the authority of his word over your life every part of your life, all of it, even the parts that you don't like. It means loving like he loved, even when you don't feel like it. It means giving like he gave, even when you don't think you should have to. It means forgiving like he forgave, even though you don't want to. It means putting others before yourself, even when they don't deserve it. It means serving his purposes in your life instead of your own. In short, submitting your life to God's authority means giving him every ounce of yourself unreservedly. By the way, that is our enemy's greatest fear. 
So he uses temptation to try and make us believe that we're taking back control of our lives. That's what Adam and Eve thought they were doing. They thought they were taking control when actually they were giving it away to the one person whose sole desire was to destroy them. And that's exactly what we're doing when we entertain temptation in our own lives. And look, temptation never shows you what's at the end of the path that it's leading you down. You know that, right? Temptation never shows you what's at the end of the path that it's leading you down. Why? Because if it did, no one would be foolish enough to follow it. Temptation always looks good and it always sounds good. But at the end of the day, it dishonors God, it contradicts his word, and it challenges his authority in your life. And as we'll see in the second half of this message, left unchecked, temptation leads to sin that will ultimately devastate your life. And yet it all starts when we entertain the temptation that every one of us has to face at times in our lives. And not only are you not powerless to stop it, you're not powerless to stop it. But in fact, you are the only one who can. Think about this. God knew that the serpent was tempting Adam and Eve when he was tempting them. You know that, right? God knew that the serpent was tempting Adam and Eve. He knew exactly what was happening as it was happening. In fact, he heard every word of it. So why didn't God step in? Why didn't God stop the conversation? Why didn't he keep Adam and Eve from sinning? Why didn't he put the serpent in his place and put Adam and Eve back on track in that moment? It's because we have a free will. So he allows us and only us to make that choice. See, it wasn't the serpent who separated Adam and Eve from God. It was their choice to sin and theirs alone that separated them from God. That's why you're as close to God in your life right now as you want to be. Because there's only one person in all the earth or in heaven above or even in hell below who has been granted the ability to choose to keep you away from God and that person is you. And so if you're far from Jesus Christ today, all that you have to do is draw near to him and he will draw near to you. That's his promise to fulfill. And your choice to make. Let's pray.